welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence Podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 48, Moroni 7-9, through 9, May Christ Lift Thee Up. This is part one of the Palmyra Legacy with Lori Bean Henderson, who has spoken for many years at the Firm Foundation Expos and who has shared the story of the great Willard and Rebecca Bean, who served the longest mission in modern-day church history. Lori is the granddaughter of Willard and Rebecca Bean, the first missionaries called to Palmyra in 1915. She enjoys telling the extraordinary stories of their 24-year mission living in the Joseph Smith home and Willard's research of the Book of Mormon lands in upstate New York. To keep this significant piece of church history alive and to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of their mission call in 2015, Lori wrote and produced the DVD documentary, Love Unfeigned. Lori is also following in the footsteps of her grandfather Willard, who studied naturopathy in the late 1800s and lived in an exemplary life of physical fitness. Lori's a certified energy healing practitioner and nutrition specialist and advocates a holistic and sensible approach to health and happiness. She enjoys yoga and Tai Chi, being in nature, gardening, earthing, traveling, and especially spending time with her children and grandchildren. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Come Follow Me supplemental um, materials. We are hoping that you have gone through the lesson. This is going to be lesson number 48. And I have with me today, I have my dear friend Lori Bean Henderson. And uh, she is, uh, she is a, a, a direct descendant of Willard Bean. And if you don't know who he is, you will by the time we're done. <laughs> so we, he is uh, an amazing individual from uh, early church history and so forth and, uh, and was instrumental in actually bringing to pass some of the things we're going to be talking about today as we go through lesson number 48. So um, this, is, this has been a, a, a real um, pleasure. I, I've been wanting to have this interview with you since, since really the beginning of the year. We started to come follow me. Because when it comes down to it, the, the one place, the one thing that uh, pretty much everybody should be able to agree on, um, as far as the Book of Mormon and where it took place, is this, this Hill Cumorah. It's pretty hard to get around the fact that the plates, the gold plates, happen to be found there. And we are so grateful that we have the Hill Cumorah, that we actually can go there and, and, uh, and, and be on the same grounds and so forth that happened. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for your wonderful ancestors. Yes. So, uh, so, so, folks, we're gonna we're gonna dive into this. I, I, I'm I'm excited about this. Though. So, this is basically uh, we're in uh, in Moroni, and we're gonna start be starting here with chapter seven. So, this is on page 497 in the Annotated Book of Mormon, which of course is our reference material for these podcasts. And so, uh, chapter seven uh, starts off. It's basically it's Moroni, and he's actually. Uh, doing some words from his father Mormon. So these this, these are, uh, apparently he's actually remembering um, the things that his father taught. And this particular part of it has to do with hope, faith, and charity. In chapter 7, verse 4, it says, And now, my brethren, I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. For I remember the words of God, which saith, By their works ye shall know them. Uh, I love that peaceable walk with the children of men. And that reminds me, there's, at the, in the uh, Annotated Book of Mormon, we have a, a quote here from President Howard W. Hunter. And he said this, he says, Your peaceable walk with the children of men, let us follow the Son of God in all ways and in all walks of life. Let us make him our exemplar and our guide. We should at every opportunity ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And then 
be more courageous to act upon the answer. We must follow Christ in the best sense of that word. We must be about his work as he was about our fathers. To the extent that our moral powers permit, we should make every effort to become like Christ. And uh, as I ponder and think about um, what I have been able to learn about your grandfather and, and your family and you yourself even, and your, and your wonderful husband, Matt, we've got to give Matt here credit as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that this peaceable walk with the children of man and by their work you should know them really exemplifies um, how I look at your grandfather, Willard Bean. And so, and uh, you know, this peaceable walk. And I know that there's been, uh, uh, as I've learned more about him, what an amazing individual. And uh, and we're going to talk more about in that in, in, in detail. Yeah, and so one word the, yes. that jumps out at me, too, is yeah. to be more courageous. And that definitely <laughs> was necessary uh, when they were in Palmyra in a hostile environment. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to, we're going to get into more of the, of the actual uh, Willard Bean story. There are things here that you're going to be able to that you won't have heard anywhere else um, that when we when we share this. Now, now, just for information's sake, though, those of you who don't know, uh, Lori has spoken you know several times actually at our different conferences. So we have her uh, and some more more full content, more more time, and so forth that to uh, to to kind of flesh out this these stories are available on the streaming website so that if you go to Book of Mormon Evidence Streaming, if you are, if you are a subscribing to that, then uh, you can access some of those wonderful things there. But this is going to be kind of more of an overview, but there's some really special things. And, and, and Lori was just telling me uh, before we started the podcast here that there's some things that you're going to share with us that um, pretty special. Yeah. And uh, so... The more sacred things that I usually don't share with general audiences. So Yeah. So we're, we're excited about hearing some of those things. So if we go just a little bit further here in uh, chapter 7, it says, uh, verse, verse 10, I love this. I've, I've always liked this, that the particular scripture says, Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a good gift. For behold, a bitter fountain cannot bring forth good water, neither can a good fountain bring forth bitter water. Um, and, and, and in fact, he goes on here to say, over here in verse uh, 15, how we can know and how we can judge between good and evil. And it really comes down to by their fruit, by their works. Mm -hmm. You can know them. He says, the way to judge is as plain as it is from daylight is to the dark night. <laughs> okay, so he says, the spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. We, we are expected to be able to know the difference between good and evil. And he says, for everything which inviteth to do good, so this kind of the important things: okay. invited to do good, persuade to believe in Christ, sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know that with the perfect knowledge it is of God. So those are those are the kind of the criteria. Mm -hmm. If it invites to do good and believe in Christ, and it's sent by by the gift and power, or the gift of Christ, basically, then you know what's good and with a perfect knowledge. Mm -hmm. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil. And to not believe in Christ and deny him and serve not God, they may know with the perfect knowledge that it is of the devil. So as I look at the works of your grandfather, and even of your own life, um, I just I see just so much good and so much sacrifice and so many things that were, that were difficult and that they had to overcome. Mm -hmm. But overall, I see 
uh, such a blessing. What, how, how your family has blessed the lives of so many people is just really pretty amazing. It is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of feels good to be from that, huh? Yeah, it's an honor. Yes. Now, a couple of more things before we're going to jump into uh, some things about the Hill Cumorah. So I think what we're going to, uh, kind of the plan is, is we're going to talk about uh, some things about the Hill Cumorah. I know that there are groups who are out there even doing Come Follow Me study things about the, 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 the Hill Cumorah, New York. Well, that's not really the real Hill Cumorah. The real Hill Cumorah is down in Central America someplace. Um, the Hill Cumorah up in New York is just kind of a symbolic thing. Um, I think we're going to try to uh, lay that to rest um, using the words of the prophets and Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and so many others who have testified over and over and over again, along with your grandfather, that the Hill Cumorah in New York was the actual and true hill of both the Jaredites, which they called it originally Rama, right. and the Nephites, which called it Cumorah. We want to see by their works um, how, they, how this all comes together. So in verse 26... Of chapter 7, it says, And after that he came, men also were saved by faith in his name. And by faith they became the sons of God. And as surely as Christ liveth, he spake these words unto our fathers, saying, Whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, in faith, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you. I can't think of very many people who uh, who probably put that to more good work <laughs> or to more of a test than your grandfather. Um, who was asked to do some pretty, well, in fact, let's just take just a second because we're kind of, some people may not be really aware of okay. what happened with your grandfather, but tell us just a little bit about uh, how this all started with your grandfather and his love for Palmyra, New York. Okay. Well, there's a whole backstory to what prepared <laughs> yes. him for yes, this mission. Exactly. Let's but do that. We, we, you want the backstory? Yes. <laughs> right now? <laughs> right now. Let's do it. Okay. There, one of these previous lessons, it was actually one of the questions was, what um, what experiences have you had that have led you on the path, prepared you for what the Lord wants you to do for your purpose in this life? And so we see that in, um, in Willard's life from the time he was a young boy. He and his brother were herding um, cattle for the church. Mm-hmm. And they lived down in Richfield, Utah. And so every summer they'd herd them down from Salt Lake, and in the fall they'd herd them back up or vice versa, and I can't remember which. But anyway, they had to herd them back and forth. And um, it was a long trek, but he was just a little boy when he started becoming um, familiar with the brethren of the church, the leadership of the church. So he's rubbing shoulders with them because of these cattle drives. Yeah, that's where it really started. And then when he was 18, um, the presiding bishopric was going down through Arizona, New Mexico, into uh, Mexico to visit saints in the outlying areas. And he was hired to um, to be their camp caretaker, and so he he um, went with them on this trek. And you know, there was horses, and yeah. you know, they didn't have cars wagons. Back then. Yeah, <laughs> wagons. yeah. They didn't so hop in a plane. He, yeah, so he went with them, <laughs> and he rolled out his sleeping bag every night under the stars with these leaders of the church, and and he learned a lot about the gospel in that experience. And they were uh-huh. gone for about a year that he did that. Uh-huh. So he was 18 then, got to know them. And then when he was um, 20, what was the next thing? He was, he was called to be a missionary in the temple. It was, it was a mission, but he, oh, was, wow. he was an Salt ordinance worker. No, this was in the Manti Temple. Okay. And um, let me back up. I need to tell you 
when he was born. Because <laughs> he is my yeah. grandfather, but he could be my great-great-grandfather with the age difference. Uh-huh. But um, he was born in Provo in May of 1868. When he was seven, wow. they moved down to Richfield. But So 1868, that was three years after the Civil War ended. Ulysses S. Grant was um, elected the 18th president of the United States that year, and Brigham Young was the prophet. <laughs> Willard was was only eight or nine years old when. Uh, how old are you? Again? No, just kidding! Don't tell. Don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough. Um, to know yeah. not to answer that question. <laughs> okay, we go. The question is, how young are you? It's true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so Brigham Willard was eight or nine when when Brigham Young passed away. So that you know kind of gives some perspective of how far back we're going here. This yeah. we're still in the 1800s when I'm telling you these stories. So. Um, so then he was called to be an ordinance worker as a missionary in the Mantai Temple. Mm-hmm. And um, Daniel Wells was the temple president. He was old and feeble. And so Willard was part of his assignment was to take care of the temple president. So he lived in the temple, and he took care of the president, and he was an ordinance worker. There's an interesting he story with this. He was 24 years old at that point? I think he was 20. 20 years old. Wow. Um, and so it, and he holds the record uh, for the entire church of performing the most baptisms at one time. He was doing, um, he did 400 baptisms, and while he was doing those, more records came in from Salt Lake. 700 more names to be done. Without getting out of the font, he continued baptizing. So he did a full 1,100 baptisms <laughs> in, one, in, in one, yeah, in one in day. In one time. Yeah. And then the, his, his co-workers in the <laughs> temple said, and, you know, that, I mean, that's pretty rigorous. <laughs> and so they said... Um, well, he was blessed with a pretty uh, strong, yeah, you know, he yeah. was a pretty strong guy. Yeah. Athlete, so we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, his co-workers in the temple told him to, um, you know, take the afternoon off and just rest. But... True to his nature, he went out and played baseball the rest of the afternoon. So that's just um, kind of a, a fun thing to know about him. Yeah. Um, and it was in the temple, he says, that he really became a student of the scriptures and really started learning the gospel and gaining a testimony of the gospel because um, he spent so much time in the temple. That's you know quite a place to do your, yeah, get your education. Learn. That's the best place of all. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and then after that, he thought his missionary work was done, and he had just barely been released from that temple assignment when he got another letter calling him to the Southern States Mission, specifically Tennessee. What's interesting about this one is he was called as a replacement for two missionaries who had been killed, killed by the Mormon, yeah. mo- Mormon-hating mobs. Yeah. 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 So he went into a hostile situation at that point and uh, didn't phase him. Um, They'd often find notices tacked on the trees that, you know, telling the... Mormons be shot on sight kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, get out of town. And he would just tap notice, t- tack notices on top of those saying, um, we're here to, um, you know, to preach talk and, to any, yeah, preach yeah. to anybody anytime on any subject, you know. So, uh, anyway, that was pretty interesting. Do you want me to tell a mission he, he, story he, right he, here, right he, now? He, he was very courageous, yeah. So please, he was. Yes. He was courageous. Yeah. He was courageous. I have a prop. To go with this story, oh. um, so in the southern, he has uh, he served in the in the Tennessee mission with George Albert Smith. His mission president was Jay Golden Kimball. 
And um, so many stories, so many mission stories, but I'll tell you my favorite. Okay. <laughs> so so um, one day he and his companion were, went, in, it was a hot day, and they went into the town square to get a drink at the fountain. And the people recognized him by the way they were dressed, yeah. so they wouldn't give him any water. So undaunted, Willard then just started passing out tracts. And um, then this big bully comes out. And he says, um, and he he was like, you know, six six, weighed well over two hundred pounds. He comes out with his buddies, and he says, um, you know, he wants to beat up on him, get him yeah. to leave. Yeah. And so uh, Willard, and he says, if we um, if we whip these um, preachers with hickory with, they'll remember us a long time. So Willard stepped forward, and he said. Um, how about we make this a sporting deal, just you and me? <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about your dad, your, your yeah, grandfather. So how big was he? Oh, yes. He was only about 5'9", and he weighed about 160 pounds. <laughs> so, so this is like David and so Clyde. He was, he was a small scrapper kind of yeah, guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, he says, let's make this a sporting deal, just you and me. He said, if you lick me, we'll leave. If I lick you, we get to preach. So he goes, oh, yeah, sure, you know, imagine this preacher. <laughs> this guy's like... Fight. So anyway... Welcoming it, yes. So Willard, this is my favorite thing. My my father gave me this book. It's Willard's Book of Mormon from his mission in, in the Tennessee. southern states. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. So Willard took his, uh, took his scriptures, laid them on a stump, and said, lay there, religion, while I prepare this man for Mormonism. <laughs> and then jumped around a little bit, you know, like he didn't know what he was doing, and then he landed a blow. It just knocked the guy out. <laughs> and everybody, I mean, all this crowd had gathered, and everybody was just blown away, just so amazed. And the, the effect it had was that he, they, the missionaries gained their respect. Wow, this is so amazing. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so that was courageous. And, now he, and we now don't he, know... Now this wasn't just something that he just kind of... Uh, just he, he had some athletic prowess. Yes. And he, and he knew some things... Yeah, and so forth. I mean, he was he was quite an athlete, actually. He was. He was. Where, where did that come from? And that actually came after the mission. It's hard to put yeah. his timeline together because he didn't add dates to everything. Yeah, yeah. But um, he went to. Well, let me finish that yeah, finish story, the story first. Yeah, finish the story, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a cool ending. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then the guy comes to and and um, and Willard always made friends. If he had to, you know, defend himself, knock somebody down. He would always help him back help up, him back and, up yeah. and they became friends. And this, this big bully guy said, um, you can preach here anytime in the schoolhouse and we'll make sure it's packed. <laughs> so that's how that story ended. But yeah, when Willard was growing up, he was, also, he was very athletic. And in college, he went to Brigham Young Academy and he won five gold medals. And I can't remember what the sports were, but different events. But he was in the, really in, taking in, in, the, in the same track meet or whatever, right? It was, it was the, the, the same big event, but he won like five different medals in it or something. Is that, if I remember right? I don't know. I'll have to, I have, <laughs> I to, I have to search my notes. I'm not sure it's right here. Um, shot putting was one. Uh, I can't remember now. Yeah. Run, running, jumping, shot putting, and two others. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he was really caught up yeah. from a young age. I mean, boxing was a new sport, and he was really excited about that. He never, surprisingly, never had any formal training. Um, I learned in some recent research, he just watched them, and he learned just that learned. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very smart. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he spent some time in San Francisco, um, where he studied 
um, naturopathy and physical culture. And there were um, institutions there where the professionals were So he was never coached in boxing? Well, this this would count, I guess, as coaching because the professional athletes were at this gym and they would practice there and he'd go watch them. And that's how he learned. And then they'd let him in the ring. And, they, of course, they gave kind of him tips and stuff. And but stuff yeah. yeah. So he impressed them enough that they would let him get in the ring with them. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. But that was after his mission. So he, I think yeah. he was pretty much just a natural athlete and yeah. self-taught. Yeah. And we don't know with that experience, we don't know if his companion knew that he was a fighter <laughs> when, he, when, he got when he made that deal. He's about to know. Yeah. So, anyway. But, um, yeah, so he he was very athletic, and that's how he got into boxing. And interestingly, was so it was after his missions and after all this association with the brethren that um, he told his parents he wanted to become a professional boxer. And they said, uh, well, you go ask the brethren about that. Imagine that, having to ask the brethren, uh, leaders of the church, if you can, you know. Become a boxer. Yeah. Anyway, but he did. Yeah. He went to them and asked them, and, and they said, well, normally we would say no. But with your knowledge of the scriptures and your friendly, the, just the friendly way you have about you, we think it will be a good thing. So you go ahead. Wow. So, and so it he got, the, and that it got the okay. You know, that many years later, yeah. it turned out yeah. to be a good thing. It was a, it was actually a real blessing later mm-hmm. on, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he used it, I think, mostly to entertain. He wasn't interested in beating people up. He did, however, teach his sons. He said, "Never pick a fight, but you're going to get in them." So, especially when you're a smaller guy. I mean, I, I know because I'm a pretty big guy, yeah. so I, I didn't have to fight very many people. But I know some of my friends who are smaller. They get picked on a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, at least a lot more than I did, because I think people just assumed I could probably, you know pound him or whatever you know mm-hmm. you know but but if you're a smaller guy i mean you just you know back in those days um you know there was always kind of this 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 you know picking on people and that yeah. kind of stuff and so you basically either either you yeah. just you learned how to take it or you learned how to defend yeah. yourself yeah so yeah so grandpa taught his sons to defend themselves and and my dad said um he said so if you're getting a, if you're in a fight and you got to defend yourself just pretend the guy's face is a foot further away than it really is. <laughs> so my dad didn't, you know, he never said that he got into Pound his fights, teeth into the back of his head? Is that no? <laughs> yeah. so I don't know if dad ever got into fights, but he was trained what to do. <laughs> so all of this experience prepared him for probably the, the shock of his life. Yeah, but see, he was, yeah. so he had all these missions, plus, you know, his exposure with the brethren from mm-hmm. a young age. So this all started to, to, to coalesce into basically a, a calling that was going to oh. change him and his yes. life and the, the, yes. the course of his life forever. Yes. It turned out that more yeah. than half of his life he was a set-apart missionary. But the other, yeah. some other interesting things about him, too. He was a bodyguard during the gold mining boom in Nevada. He was a, a bodyguard. So, you know... <laughs> He had a lot of, you know, a lot of skills. Yeah, clearly he was tough. Yeah. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about how, so how did the Palmyra connection end? How, what happened with that? Okay, so he got married in, in the late 1800s. No, let's see. Yeah. Because they had their first child. He married Gussie D. Feltz. She's young. He met her when he was in San Francisco at school. Mm-hmm. And um, they got married and they had two children. Paul was born in 1900, and Phyllis was born in 1903, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they um, they lived there for a while. And where, where was that again? In Sa- it's Northern California. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 
he worked there for a while. And then um, they came back to Salt Lake, and um, sadly, the marriage didn't work out. It had a tragic ending. They got divorced. Willard got um, custody of the children, the two children. And um, Gussie remarried about six months later to a traveling salesman who turned out to be a very abusive man. Mm. And six months into their marriage, he came home and shot and killed her, then killed himself. It was a, oh, wow. a gruesome, gruesome murder-suicide. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and it was reported that Willard made all the funeral arrangements, and it was reported that he just threw himself over her coffin and wept, and wept crying out her name. Wow. So he loved her, and it was unfortunate that it ended that way. But eight um, years later, um, in 1914, he met my grandmother. Um, and Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he, and, well, in between that time, after he'd been married and before he met Rebecca, there's more experience gained, <laughs> you know, how the Lord was preparing him for all of this. He, and his bro- he, he hired a woman to ten- take ter- care of the children so he and his brother could go back to New York. And they had written a play called Corianton. And so they went back there hoping that it would be a hit and they'd make a lot of money. It was a huge flop, and they lost everything. So, um, But while he was back there, he got, became very interested in the political rallies. And this was during the Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt era. And so he'd go to attend these rallies. And um, one time the reverend that was supposed to give the opening prayer at this rally didn't show up, so they asked Willard if he'd come up and pray. And then um, another time, the senator who was scheduled to speak didn't show up. So Willard spoke in his place. He could wow. speak on any subject just, just like Off that. The cuff, just yeah. like that. Yeah. I, di- I didn't get that gift, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, he was amazing. He knew so much about so many things, and he could just talk about anything. So he, he was in religious circles, he was known as Reverend Bean. That's what oh, they really? called him back there. In um, political circles, he was Mr. Bean. And then in. in uh, uh, boxing, he was known as Kid Bean, and then the Mormon Cyclone, and finally the Fighting Parson. <laughs> the Fighting Parson. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. <laughs> and he was he was um, he was not a world champion. He as has was portrayed in the movie we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. He um, he really, if you look at his boxing record on, I think it's boxnet.com. It has all the boxing statistics and. He, his career was not very long, and he was the middleweight champion of Western Utah. Oh, so he, yeah, he was, <laughs> and he 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 did a few meets in um, I don't know what you call them, boxing tournaments. Tournaments, okay, tournaments, yeah, probably in um, in Denver, and he did some in um, in California and San Francisco. Yeah. Most of them were here in Utah, and he won about half. So, you know, I think we've kind of really blown the boxing career out of proportion. But he was good and he was good yeah. and good enough to serve God in an interesting in way. Things. Yeah, by the way, so so you just mentioned the, the film. So those of you who uh, probably most of you have either heard of it or probably even seen it, but it's called The Fighting Preacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it has and depicts a little bit about the this experience that the Bean family had as they went back to Palmyra and, and so forth and so on, and uh, we're going to talk about a few things about the you know that that uh, about some of the character characteristics and so forth of Willard and and Rebecca and uh, some of the cool things that they happened 
and so mm-hmm. forth there. So, but we'll, yeah. we'll kind of jump into that here in okay. just a couple of minutes. But okay. But actually, go okay, ahead. So but, but while we're doing it, let's go ahead and, and then keep keep going with this. Uh, so when did he get the okay. call? <laughs> After he came back from this big flop in New York, but. Yeah, <laughs> he still, you know, so it was a worthwhile trip because of what he learned. It's called Corianton. Yes. Uh, oh, well, that it, right it there dreadful. should give you a clue. Yeah, it was dreadful. <laughs> we at BYU just about four or five years ago, they pulled it out of the archives. Oh, and really? Re, yeah, re, redid it. You know, how, I mean, it was quite a project. Uh-huh. And Matt and I went to see it. It was just a one night thing for film students. And we went to see it, and boy, it was, it was. It was, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> so so yeah. a screenwriter, he was not. Okay. Right. Okay. He, I mean, he, he wrote a lot, but that, yeah. one wasn't, that one wasn't a good one. But okay. anyway, um, so, okay, so then he meets my grandmother. They got married that fall, and in the spring of 2015, there was a state conference in, in Richfield. And George Albert Smith, remember, they had been in the mission together, George Albert Smith was presiding at that conference. And uh, I'm wondering if I should back up just a little bit. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Okay. So it was in 1907. George Albert Smith went back to Palmyra a lot, and he made friends with the man who lived in the Joseph Smith home. And the and the farm on the farm, his name was Mr. Chapman. This is the, this is Alvin's home that they made for right for uh-huh. for, for the, not the, the log scene. home, but yes, yeah, the, the other the, home, the, the frame, frame home. home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the church really wanted the property, of course. And so um, George Albert Smith was trying to make that happen. And finally, in 1907, Mr. Chapman agreed to sell to the church on one condition that he could stay there until they found a suitable place to live to move to. So the church thought that was going to be three, four months, maybe. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be almost eight years. <laughs> so suddenly, now they had the property, and they ha- all these years had gone by, and they hadn't given it a thought as to who they would send out there to take care of the farm. And so, so now, now back to the state conference. My grandmother's sitting up in the choir seats, and Willer comes in the side door of the chapel, and as soon as um, President Smith saw him, he stepped up to the mic and said, Would Willard Bean please come to the stand? <laughs> so Willard went up and he said, I have another mission for you. I'll tell you about it after after this meeting. So they met with him after and he said, When you walked through that door, the spirit was so strong, it was as if a voice said to me, There's your man. Wow. So that's how they got called. Okay, so I've kind of set this up because now we're talking about courage and faith mm-hmm. to do the Lord's work. And... Um, so let's put this in perspective now, because Willard, at this point, he was... So what is the calling? The calling is to... Oh, to, to Pal, the Palmyra. So they um, met with President Joseph F. Smith. He was the prophet at the time. So this is 1915. So they went up to Salt Lake, met with him. He f- officially called them as missionaries to go back to Palmyra for five years or longer. Uh, that was the call. Five years the, and or longer. the or longer part is in there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, and then he, and then they were set apart. And President Smith told them, "You will find Palmyra the most prejudiced place on the earth, and as far mm-hmm. as religion and Mormonism mm-hmm. goes." And so they had that warning. And so now, with that, consider this, the the situation here. Willard is forty six years old. Rebecca's only twenty three. And he's had all this experience out in the world on so many different levels. She has never been out of Richfield. 
she's newlywed, barely pregnant with their first child, and raising Willard's two teenage children now. <laughs> and she's being asked to leave the comforts of home and security Not and, you know, and place. all the members of the church, you know, that kind of support, to go across the country to the other coast to a hostile, hateful environment where she is not welcome. None of them yeah. are welcome. So that's the scenario. And it required faith <laughs> and courage. Hope. And now, President Smith, when he, when he set them apart, he told Willard, he said, he said um, when, when we you know, were determining who we were going to call, we knew it had to be a humble man, a fighting man. A man who knew the gospel and a man who could make friends. And so they had to know how to run a farm, too. Yes. And then he gave them four assignments. The four assignments were number one, make friends Mm -hmm. in this hostile environment. Number two, farm the land. Number three, baptize converts. And number four, start a branch of the church in that order. In that order. And so he said, Willard, I know your missionary spirit, and you're going to want to get out there and start preaching right away, but this is different. You have to be patient. First, make friends. So mm-hmm. it took five years. Five years before people started accepting them. When they got there, the people knew they were coming. They knew the farm had been sold. They knew the Mormons were coming, and they were not happy about this. They were ready and waiting for them. They wouldn't wait on them in stores. They wouldn't talk to them. Walking down the street, they'd cross to the other side. They'd pull their children, their dogs away. They wouldn't wait on them in stores. Again, horse and buggy days. They wouldn't even sell them stuff. They they refused to sell them things in some cases. They had to to go to another another town so they could even buy supplies and goods. Yeah, And then when people drove by the farm, they just yell obscenities at them, scream at them, tell them to go home. We don't want any any Mormons here. Any Mormons here? <laughs> yeah, and so it was. You know, it was not a pleasant. It, it yeah. was not a pleasant welcome at all. And um, yeah, some of that's actually depicted in the film too. I mean, yes, in the, the, the film about just you know the the uh, groups would come over and, and I mean mm-hmm. with guns and everything and basically yeah. and, and literally were like going to threaten to have yeah. make them leave and yeah. so forth. And they said. Uh, we're not leaving. Yeah. Well, so shortly after they were there, um, three men showed up at the front door, and Willard opened the door and invited them in, and they said, no, Mr. Bean, you come out here. And so he stepped out, and this is portrayed in the movie, and um, they were ministers. They had had a meeting. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't had a meeting. They had yeah. had a meeting representing the town. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, they said, we've been sent out here to tell you people we we don't want you here. To pack up and leave, and Willard said, "Well, I'm sorry to hear that. We came out here and hope to make friends and be an asset to this, to this community. So I'm telling you, we're here to stay if we have to fight our way. I'll take you on one at a time or three at a time. We're here to stay." <laughs> so they fled. I never heard from them again. But there was another time where um, um, a group had been to a ministerial convention. Yeah. Seems so ironic. Yes, this is it. <laughs> so these ministers, it was a whole bunch of ministers, and then they had some school teachers with them, three school teachers. And they showed up on the door, and they said, we've been here for this ministerial convention, and we thought we'd come out here and little, here, learn a little about old Joe Smith and so on. And uh, so this was actually um, my grandma's experience. Yeah. 
She was home alone. She dreaded answering the door, but they kept knocking. So she had her new baby on her arm, just a few months old, and she opened the door, and you know they said who they were, and and they wanted to learn about Old Joe Smith. And she always said they always called him Old Joe Smith, and she felt like it was to belittle him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, she invited them in, and she started telling them, "This is the room where." Joseph brought the plates. Here's the hearthstone where he hid them under the hearthstone. And they started yelling and screaming questions at her, never waiting for mm-hmm. an answer. Her baby was crying. She'd never been in a situation like that in her entire life. And she knew she had to pray, and she didn't know how. She said, I don't know how to pray in a situation like this. <laughs> but she did. She prayed deep down in her heart. And all of a sudden, a haze came into the room. And it was very quiet, very different and still. Everybody, still. And she said, and then I felt someone standing beside me to help me. And she was able to go on and tell Joseph's story and defend him. And they listened. Then she took him upstairs and showed him the prophet's bedroom and showed them around. And then um, they came back down and she invited him to sign the guest book. And many of them did. And then many of them actually apologized for their behavior and thanked her for what she had told them. Yeah. And then they left. And she says she wrote, um, she said, I sat down in my rocker, and I was rocking my baby back to sleep. And she said, I just pondered on this amazing feeling that came into the room and the knowledge and the feeling of someone standing beside me to help me. She said, hmm. after that, I knew the Prophet Joseph Smith. <laughs> she said, we felt his love and his influence all the years that we lived there, even her children yeah. felt it. And she said, she said, to us, he was Joseph. Not old Joe, but Joseph. Mm-hmm. And she said, and when my children said his name, they said it with tenderly. Respect. With yeah. respect. Yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me, I mean, this is in verse 37 here. Again, this is Moroni chapter 7, verse 37. It says, Behold, I say unto you, uh, well, he, he basically he's asking the question, have angels ceased to appear? This is in, in, in verse 36. Or have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? Or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? Or or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Behold, I say unto you, nay, it is by faith that miracles, like you were just describing, mm-hmm. are wrought. And it is by faith that angels appear, mm-hmm. or Joseph in this particular case, uh, and minister unto men, wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief and all is vain. Mm-hmm. So, if, let, let me add to that story. Yeah. Um, because when I was on my mission in Germany, many, many years ago, <laughs> 1980, uh-huh. um, this is 79, um, my, um, I had my grandmother's um, fireside talk. It's all printed. In fact, I have it with me. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so I had taken it to one of our investigators. She was an old woman. In, she was a young woman in her 70s. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, no, we're getting closer to those ages yeah, now. It's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> and um, so I took it, my companion, I went to her home, and I asked her if she would help me translate it into German. So she did. And when we got to that story, my grandmother tells that story in this account. Mm-hmm. And when we got to that story, when it was she prayed deep in her heart, and all of a sudden a haze came into the room. We had the very same experience in this mm. um, investigator's home. It just suddenly was so st- quiet and so still, and you felt, you just felt this mm. spirit just flood into the room. 
It was amazing. She, she felt it. My companion was in another room studying, and she looked through the door like, What's going on? What's in going here? on? <laughs> and and that spirit stayed with us the entire time we were with her that day. Yeah. And she actually was later baptized. I think from that experience, <laughs> I think she, awesome. I think that was a witness to her. That is awesome. It was beautiful. That is awesome. So so then um, so they get the calling. They, they they move there, and then this is for five years. He was, it's only going to be for five years or or longer. He said. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Well, it took it took five years before people would even start talking to them. Um, well, the kids didn't he, even go to school, I guess. Or something. well, okay, I'll tell you. Um, my dad. This was 1924 when my dad started school. He was six years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the second child born there. My aunt Palmyra was the first. It's a funny mm-hmm. story. Palmyra. So she was born. Yeah, she was born in um, 15, the year they got there. And my grandpa wanted to name her. Um, wanted her to name her Palmyra, but he wanted that to be the middle name. He wanted her first name to be Ima. Ima Palmyra Bean. But grandma <laughs> grandma wouldn't go for that. So I'm they dropped Palmyra Bean. They dropped Ima and her name was Palmyra Bean. We called her Aunt Pal. So yeah. if we're talking on they refer to her as Aunt Pal. But um, That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so so she was the oldest uh-huh. child of Willard and Rebecca. So okay. had the other two still there there, but this was their child. And then my dad was born three years later. So when he started school, he was six years old. They didn't have kindergarten. He went right into first grade. And when he arrived at school, he found his desk screwed to the floor in the back of the classroom. Because Now, this is different than the movie. It was portrayed as my Aunt Palmyra. Um, and as far as I know, in the records I've read of her, she never mentioned her early days of school. And I asked my dad, did this happen to Aunt Palmyra? And he said no. It happened um, to him. It happened to him. And he said, we boys got the brunt of the bullying. But all of them had to endure having their lunches stolen and their you know, galoshes and mm-hmm. all these things. They, they took a lot from the other kids. Um, but anyway, so my dad's first day of school, he goes to school. And the, te- the parents had sent notes to the teacher that they would not allow their child to sit next to that Mormon boy. Mm-hmm. So he was away from all the other students, only six years old, imagine that. And sequestered by himself. Yeah, but he, you know, he just went along with it. I, it's extraordinary how the skill they had to have in raising their children in that kind of environment as well. Mm-hmm. And keep them, you know, teach them to be loving and kind and forgiving. Um, that's what they grew up with. So anyway, he said after a few months, he said it didn't seem to be too long, he went back to school and his desk had been moved in with the other children. And he felt like it must have been more embarrassing for the teacher and the other kids than it was for him. So, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't just Willard and Rebecca who had um, lessons to learn there, but the children as well had to well, learn. And also the teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, Dad, you know, Dad yeah. mentioned that. He said when these other kids were teasing him and bullying him and stuff, they didn't get any support from the teachers. They just let it happen. So that's that was mm. that was the conditions back then. Um, did I answer yeah. your question? I yes, don't remember yes. what your question was. Yes, well, we're going to get into more about we're going to get into the Hill Camorra stuff okay. and uh, and how that all came to pass and how uh, that hit this mission by Willard Bean actually uh, ultimately culminated in in the uh, the church actually uh, becoming the owner and uh, being able to purchase the Hill Camorra. Mm. And how important this hill Camorra is here as we as we finish up the last couple of chapters in the in this in this great uh, monumental history 
um, the hill kimura plays a really critical part in this, and in, in not just in the Nephite civilization, but also in the Jaredite civilization, and also in church history. So yes. this is this is this this point. This hill kimura is so critical that we understand it. And uh, and I, I was just going to touch on just a couple of last things here as we, and then we're going to jump right into the hill kimura stuff. But okay. but basically, so I I love this chapter eight. This is uh, Mormon's epistle, basically to to his son Moroni. Um, where he expresses his love for his son. And I just love that so much. He says, I'm mindful of you always in my prayers. And isn't that kind of typical of a good parent? Mm-hmm. You know, as the, to keep them in their prayers, continually praying unto God the Father in the name of his holy child, Jesus Christ, or says Jesus, that he, through his infinite goodness and grace, will keep you through the endurance of faith on his name to, to the end. end. I mean, what a wonderful parent, mm-hmm. and uh, what a, what a special um, relationship that these two had mm-hmm. together. As 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 you see him uh, pouring out his his heart. I mean, he can't really be with Moroni at the time. Yeah, uh, he's actually out uh, fighting other battles right at the moment, and so forth. He says, "I hope to be able to see you again, but just in case I don't, right. <laughs> you Such know, incomprehensible." Yeah. Circumstances going on back. Then. Yeah. I'd like to at the end of our conversation. I'd like to read my grandmother's. Last letter to her children. Yeah. I, I, and I hope that maybe that's something that, that uh, we also kind of consider. Um, you know, what is the legacy that we leave mm-hmm. um, for our own children? I mean, this is the legacy that uh, that, uh, that Mormon is, re- is, is leaving for Moroni. Uh, Moroni then gives us his legacy, basically, in the last chapter, in, verse ten, in chapter 10 right. of the Book of Mormon. Um, and each of us have a legacy to, to leave, and uh, so I'd love to. I, I'm excited about hearing about your uh, your grandmother, your My grandmother's grandmother's final, um, final words, final words, and so forth. So stay tuned, and maybe some of yours too, if you have something that you'd like to share there. So, <laughs> anyway, so yes. So um, then it goes into about the little children need no repentance. We all we we know about those kind of things, and then and this um, in verse 27 of chapter eight. Of Marani, he says, "Behold, my son, I will write unto you again if I if I if I go not out soon against the Lamanites, because he doesn't know if he's going to be he may be I killed know. at any point. This, this right? whole thing, this is just so tragic, and I just cry as I get to the end. Yep. Of this book. There's so much good and so much wickedness. Yeah, but this is I think especially apropos for our particular day and time. Yes. He says, "Behold, the pride of this nation, mm-hmm. or the people of the Nephites, have proven their destruction, except they should repent." Yeah. So now this apparently has not happened yet, but he's basically saying that the Spirit's telling him that their nation is never going to come back. It's going to be forever. Um, it's going to be destroyed. He says, pray for them. Even though he, I love this, because even though he knows mm-hmm. they're not going to make it through this time. They have gone, they have wandered too far off the path. They have be, gone beyond the, the point of, of return. But he still says, Pray for them anyway. Yeah. It says, My son, that repentance may come unto them. For behold, I fear lest the Spirit hath ceased striving with them. And in this part of the land, they are also seeking to put down all power and authority which cometh from God. Mm-hmm. Or just lock them out of their churches so they can't you know, actually worship. Yeah. But, they can, yeah. but they can go to the liquor stores and so forth. <laughs> and that, that kind of thing. That, that's fine. <laughs> and, they are, and they are denying the Holy Ghost. And after rejecting so great a knowledge, my son... They must perish soon. And yet, we're going to pray 
until the very end. Yeah. You just don't give up hope. We're going to keep, uh, keep going. Now, the second epistle that, that, that Moroni um, receives from his father, Mormon, is, um, is one that I'm going to talk about a little bit uh, the, in, in the next couple of podcasts here. Um, so I'm not going to go into that right now, but basically he's describing how the debauchery that was going on among the Lamanites, and he's describing some of these just awful, wicked things that are going on among the Lamanites. And he says, but you know what? It's even worse among mm-hmm. the Nephites. The yeah. Nephites have even gotten worse yes. than the Lamanites are. How did this happen? <laughs> and, then, and then he goes into his farewell, uh, Mormon's farewell to his son. And, and uh, again, we're going to cover that a little bit more um, next uh, in the next one as we talk about chapter 10. Now, there was a couple of things though, that you mentioned about in chapter 10 it, 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 just, just talking about the uh, testimonies. Yeah, just that it was um, Moroni's final words to us. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to share some final words from my okay. grandparents. Okay. All right, so we'll so do we're that gonna, at the end, I think. So we're going to do that at the end. So I, I, wa- I want to take Joe just a few minutes here and uh, switch a little bit of gears. Okay. okay. So your grandfather, he served how many years then? There in, in Palmyra, Palmyra twenty four. Yeah. yeah, they were called. This is interesting. They were called for five years or longer. And there and, four. And uh, four in fact, I have the letter right here. Oh, oh, okay. This. Yeah, tell us. Um, what, what is yeah, that so, I'm. I'm. So what is this letter have, now? This, this is the letter that my grandmother wrote to my mom and dad when they got their release. And it goes into personal stuff too. But so they were called for five years or longer. It was 24 years later that they received their release, and um, my grandmother always said, I left as a newlywed and came home a grandmother. So, <laughs> yeah, so my Aunt Palmyra, my Aunt Palmyra had already um, been married and had a baby, and they were uh-huh. living in Utah. They, all the kids went, came back to Utah and went to, um, what was it called mean? then? B-Y um, Academy? The, no, in, in Logan. Oh, Utah State. Um, it was the, the agricultural, agricultural college, college yeah. back then. Yeah. So that's where they went. And um, so my dad had just gotten married um, not quite a month before this letter came. Wow. So um, she says, I was so happy for both of your sweet letters. I have a big surprise for you. Or perhaps you have heard news travels fast. We received our release today. Or should I say transfer to Salt Lake City, where dad will work at the bureau in the te- on the temple grounds. So and then it goes on, but I just is her hand. It's it's the original letter. I just feel the privileged. Original letter. That's so cool. Yeah. Here, hold that up so we can see oh. it. Maybe um, okay. Right, hold that up right there. Oh, okay. Okay, we can kind of zoom in just a little bit on it there. You can kind of see the original letter there. Is that awesome. Pretty cool. What was the date on that again? February sixth, nineteen thirty nine. February sixth. That's my birthday. Cool. Is that? <laughs> yeah. 1939. Wow. Yeah. Now, I know that there are some stories, and this is all, and this, a lot of that is in the film, but there's a couple of things, though, that I thought were really, were really special. As I've gotten to know, uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, to meet you and Matt um, there in Palmyra, well, I think a couple of different times, but this one particular time, we actually got the chance to go into a couple of places there in Palmyra that were kind of important in, uh, in in some of the accounts from your 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 your, your grandfather's history. So mm-hmm. by the way, pull pull those, pull those two history books out, oh. the, the two. So there's there's several books here. So I want to point these out. So this is uh, ABC the History of Palmyra and the Beginning of Mormonism by Willard Bean. So he's talking about his missionary experiences and things no, like that. No, in this one, no, he's not. It was the, the leaders of, a, of the church were just so anxious to have all the information they could get from, you know, 
what, what, what are people saying yeah. back there yeah, about yeah. us now and back then? So he collected, you know, he went to, well, my he took my dad and the boys to libraries, local libraries, um, more often in Rochester, a bigger library, and they would research, you know, just find all this information, and they had to write it down by hand. So my dad would write everything down, <laughs> and that's, um, you know, so they gathered all this information. So Willard put this together. It was kind of like, you know, considered a pamphlet for the leaders in Salt Lake to know what was happening back there. And he goes clear back to the very beginning when King Somebody in England Gave us this yeah. land grant over here. I guess it was in the 1600s, and goes on. It's, it's, it truly is a history, but yeah. from, starting from A to yes, B to C. Okay. Yeah. And what I liked about this book, I mean, if you're into real estate, you'll really enjoy the beginning of the book. <laughs> I liked the part um, where he retold Joseph's story um, from a different perspective. And he had, and some of them are so heartbreaking, but he had quotes from newspapers and stuff, what they were saying about Joseph at the time of the first vision. Mm -hmm. Here he was just a teenager, and he had to suffer so much ridicule. Yeah. And so a from lot of From the mainstream that, media. Yeah. At yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but he's, so it's, it's really Joseph's story, um, mm -hmm. a new look at it. So I really liked that one. Now, this is the Geography of the Book of Mormon. You want to tell us a little bit more about that okay, one? He wrote Which, this by one. the way, you can get, uh, we have copies of that. Uh, yeah. You can get on our bookstore. That's the, this right here. It's the Geography of the Book of Mormon by the, the In Search of Rama Kimura here. Mm -hmm. And again, this is by Willard Bean and Cecil McGavin. Cecil McGavin, yeah. Yeah. And um, so that was another thing that um, beyond the four initial um Instructions: Make friends, farm the land. By the way, that farm was 135 acres. Yeah, it's a big farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they had lots of animals and stuff. Dad, Dad said, "I wish my children could have grown up in, the, in on a farm like that." We're trying to create our own little farm now. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I've seen so. it. It's pretty awesome. I don't see any sheep though. No, no I don't sheep. They're going to do the livestock. <laughs> okay. um, we just want to grow food. Anyway, so make friends, farm the land. Um, baptize converts and start a branch of the church. Well, in addition to that, as these things were being accomplished, Willard was doing lots of research for mm -hmm. for this book, you know, for the church, and then also um, Book of Mormon evidence, evidence that that's where this all took place. And boy, there's a lot of it that goes back yeah. hundreds of years, two, three hundred years before the first vision, before yep. the church was even restored, and we had the Book of Mormon. It goes way back. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. So that's what this book is, and this is it. Really, is phenomenal. If you get a chance to yeah. get a, get a hold of that book, I mean, it was one of the earliest uh, uh, treatises, basically, mm -hmm. by somebody who actually lived there and, yeah. and and saw it his himself with his own eyes and and, and experienced these things. And um, and it, it's just it really is, yeah. is a powerful thing. Now, there's a couple other things you brought over here too. So this is oh. this is one of my favorite ones right here, and this is called Love Unfeigned: The 100 Year Legacy. Of uh, mission of Willard and Rebecca Bean in Palmyra, New York. So this is basically, this is. Um, I'll tell you a story. Yeah, tell us so, a story about that. So my, that, my that's awesome. Yeah, yeah my sister um, was really the um, historian in our family. That's Vicky. Yeah. Yeah. Collected all so much information. We've got these two volumes here too. Yeah, pull those up so the hold people those can see up that this, for a minute. how big this thing is. Okay, this is volume one. <laughs> so hold that one. Give you an idea of how big this, this thing is. This is volume okay, two. Okay, volume two, right there. Okay. There we go. And um, so she started compiling all the information she could find on him. She spent decades 
um, this is searching like over, libraries. Almost 650 pages long. Oh, yeah, the whole thing's over that. I think it's 1,100 pages or something. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, anyway, but she's just researching everything she could find. And she'd go to the genealogy library and the church library and University so of Utah So can you get libraries. these? I mean, are these available someplace? I'll, or tell, you, just... I'll tell you that, too. So, <laughs> just a moment. So, anyway, that's her life's work. In addition to raising seven beautiful children, she did that. Wow. So, really, she's the historian. Um, but And she died six years ago from a very rare cancer. And before she died, oh, this was sad. kind of getting near the end she, um, yeah, because she spoke at the conference too. Yeah, that's how I, I was. I, I got to, to know. Conference. In fact, I, I remember one time when I when I, I think when the first time I met her actually, um, and she brought out um, a whole set of artifacts and so forth from the Hill Camorra. I'm like, what? Well, this is awesome! <laughs> you know, she had all these arrowheads and this and that and the other thing, and and it was it was really pretty special. Yeah, very very cool for her yeah. to be able to show that. Yeah, yeah. So. So anyway, she was um, nearing death, and I was at the hospital with her. Remarkably, she they thought you know she thought that was it, but she did come home and live a few more months. But anyway, this particular time in the hospital, we happened to be alone. Usually, there was mm-hmm. family and doctors, coming, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so she pulled me over. She reached out for me, pulled me over, and she said, "I've been waiting to be alone with you." And so I got down really close because she didn't have much of a voice left. So I got really close where I could hear her. And she said, will you carry on what I've started? I don't want Grandpa and Grandma to die with me. Mm. So inside I'm going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. On the outside I said, I would be happy to. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know what. That's kind of a heavy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't didn't know what I was going to do with this. And so then she did go home, and then I would go down. I'd spend weekends down there and give her husband a break and her daughter, who was there most of the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, we talked a lot about it. And years before, we had had a plan that in 2015, we were going to go back to Palmyra together and celebrate the 100-year anniversary mm-hmm. of that call. Yeah. Well, we knew that wasn't going to happen at this point. Then I had the idea. I remember I was sitting by her bed talking to her, and I said, hey, Maybe I could get Matt in on this and we could make a documentary. <laughs> so I called Matt and said, can we make a documentary? To By the way, Matt is a videographer husband. and so forth. Yeah, yeah he, he, he worked uh, for the church for many years in the yeah. production department. Anyway, so so I called him and he said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got it done um, just in time. And then we went back. And we had the books published, um, also her books that she'd written, and she just That's had the big green books. Okay. No, not these. Okay. Um, but like um, she had written Willard Bean, the Fighting Parson, yeah. um, based on his autobiography. She wrote it as a biography. Mainly, she did that back in 1980, so that her children would have the history. Mm. So she kind of, you know. Pulled it together, mm-hmm. and she just had it in a spiral bound eight and a half by eleven, and it, people were buying those like crazy, even selling them in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we decided to have them you know, more, formally more, published more like formal, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. so we did this, and um, and um, ABC History, and there's another one he wrote. I don't have my original copies of Gospel Conversations is with the publisher right now. It's Boyd. Uh-huh. Boyd Tuttle's yeah, our publisher, yeah. and those are with him as. Are he took these and scanned them so these can be republished. Okay. Um, so, um, but they're all amazing. And so, with all my sister's research, then suddenly just people were sending her 
letters and calling her with things they knew about Willard. And so it's mm. an amazing compilation. And, yeah. uh, and then one day, and it, like I said, this went on for years. And one day, the Spirit just said, this is enough. And so she stopped collecting and put it together. <laughs> now, let me just tell you a story about now, these. Now, did she give so, all the stuff to you then? So you have the I, I have, okay. yeah, and, yeah, and she's transferred copyrights okay. over and to the me. the Spirit's still saying enough? <laughs> I, I think so. Maybe after today, this will be enough. I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, we made this. We went back to Palmyra for that, um, for um, the whole run of the pageant yeah. that year, so yeah. 2015. And I think that's and, when, I know, first, when I first, when we went out to the... Uh, no, we'd already been on tour about that at that point. We went on your tour in Right, but I met you guys out there separately. Oh, and then we, that's And then right. you took us, you took me to uh, right. like the, the place where the boxing match yeah, actually happened. So I'll get to we we got to talk about that. that. That was awesome. Okay, so I'll okay. get to that. So anyway, okay, so, yeah. so in Palmyra, though, I never in my life dreamed I would do anything like this. Mm -hmm. Speak or, um, you know, create a DVD or any or any of this. Yeah. But we went back there. We had our DVD. We had the books published just in time. And we were in the bookstore every day. And you just, I, we were just dumbfounded at the people who just poured in and came right to our table mm -hmm. and said, I just felt like I was supposed to come in here today. And I was signing books and DVDs and just hearing people's testimonies and how this story has affected their life. brought them back yes. into the church or yeah. changed their life. What So many stories. It was the most amazing experience. And then in the evenings, we had arranged with a woman in the ward back there, um, Lynn Green. She had worked for the city. She had so many connections. She was so good to us. And she arranged that we could do a fireside every night in the Pliny T. Sexton Bank Building which is a historic building in Palmyra now. Mm -hmm. And in a moment, I will tell you also about Pliny Sexton and how he's part of all of this story. <laughs> but uh -huh. anyway, so that was really an honor to be yeah. able to be. And of course, you know, we hadn't advertised anything. So we just put a sign out on the, cur out on the curb, you know, said, um, I don't Willard even remember Bean. what it said, story but yeah, Story of Willard Bean, yeah. just very brief, 6 p.m., and and that gave people time to come hear us and get, still get and to the get pageant. Over the pageant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that was the plan. So the first night, a family of three showed up: a mother, father, and a little girl. And so we did our presentation. First time I'd ever done this presentation. So then the next night, more people came, and the next night more and more until the last night we did. I think nine nights. The last night it was standing room only. Members of the temple presidency were there. Ordinance workers, missionaries. Yeah. Um, townspeople, ward people, pageant um, goers. Pageant goers. Yeah. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. I, it was just, it was just, I just couldn't believe every night that I was actually doing this. And it was, I was keeping my <laughs> promise to my sister. I think she should be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. anyway, that was a, a, an amazing experience. So, we got to tell about um, the history there, where a lot mm -hmm. of people who live there don't even know all of this. Now, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it was during that time frame when when I was there also uh, doing some book signings and so forth at the bookstore there in Palmyra, and then uh, and and then we got together and then he said, "Well, come on over and we'll and, and we'll show you where this boxing match happened." Now I got I got to tell you though that the uh, the, the um, this had such a profound effect on me. I mean, it just I, I loved just being there with you guys and knowing what happened there and so forth. And it's kind of just a 
So it's it's like a city building, I guess. What is now it, now? it is. It's so city. it's right across. So we were we yeah, were doing our just down the street, literally from the Grand Impress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the bank building where we were doing our thing is straight across the street, and there's a city park next to it, mm-hmm. and then that's also owned by the banker. So that was yeah, one property. Yeah. And right across the street from that is what is now the city hall. Yeah. And this, you know, the city building. And I'm not sure how you got in, but somehow you had special keys or permission or something but well, we got in well i'll tell you what when i was a little girl the first time i went back yeah was i was eight years old and i've been back several times since but anytime we went back there with my dad or not even with us anytime he was back there and people you know he you know he'd yeah. go around to the yeah, sites yeah. And, and he'd introduce himself oh well you can just have free reign then we don't need to give mm-hmm. you a tour you can just go wherever you want and so when we were yeah. kids we got to go through the whole house and everything you know without Oh, and, and by the way, and by the way, this, this this whole thing. I mean, when after the twenty four year mission was through, and your and your grandparents um, moved back to Salt Lake, um, the people of Palmyra actually basically shut down the whole town and came out um, to, uh, if I understand, if I remember correctly, they had like a big uh, get together and everything to uh, thank. Yes, don't go. You're getting way ahead of the game here. Oh, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. So, okay, so go ahead. Yeah. Okay. When my dad said he was Alvin Bean and they knew who that was, so they just kind of let him do what he wanted to do. Yeah. When we were there, so in 2000, my dad was 80, and we thought this is a good time. The temple was dedicated, and um, we thought this is a good time to get as many beans back as we can. So 27 of us went back. Dad took us all around. We recorded him at all these different locations. He was telling about growing up there and the history. So we did that. And and that's when I learned that that city hall, that city building, used to be the opera house. And they Mm -hmm. told us that it had these grand um, spiraling staircases on both sides to this beautiful auditorium up there. So... You know what it looks like now. But anyway, yeah. so when we went back... Pigeons you know, live in it, basically. <laughs> what, pigeons? Yeah. Pigeons, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, now I, I could go in and say, well, I'm the granddaughter of Willard Bean, and so, you know, sometimes so I get access. access. Yeah, yeah. But um, so anyway, they let us go, all 27 of us, and then when we were with you. Yeah, but yeah. they let us all go up there, and you can still see the stage there, mm-hmm. but it was it was covered with birds and there were holes in the ceiling and there were boxes storage boxes all around yeah, yeah. it was just um in such disarray yeah. and yet sad, when we, really. yeah and yet when we stood in there and closed our eyes just like you could like just you could imagine, imagine the, it, yeah. you could hear the crowds cheering you could, <laughs> it was the most amazing thing and i, I don't uh-huh. know if that's what you felt but it was it was the space of turning hearts Mm-hmm. It's kind of a big turning point, actually, for your it whole for the whole Bean family and their acceptance yeah. into the community and so forth. And I, I got to tell you, I was I was pr- I was pretty disappointed though in the the film when it came out. The way it was kind of portrayed in the boxing match was kind of a turning point, but it wasn't the turning point as I understood it. It was actually completely he, different. He, yeah, he completely switched. Um, because my understanding of it was, and that, and I think you can probably verify this, is that basically, so there was a big, it was like a 4th of July kind of a, some kind of a big no. celebration or something. They had a big boxing no. exhibition is no, what they were doing. that's not what it was. <laughs> okay, all right, well, get, get, get us straight here. <laughs> what, what happened? So they were, at this point, they were about, 
seven, five to seven years into the into mission. It. Like I said, it was at year five where Willard said, okay, I've got to become a little more aggressive here. Um, because this, it's not, things are not changing. People yeah, things are not us. changing. And by yeah. aggressive, you know, um, that didn't mean with boxing gloves. It meant with words. He started holding street meetings in town. And, and he was very respectful, you know, that, you know, we don't want you in our churches and stuff, yeah. uh, or we don't want you here. But he did, they started having street meetings and people would gather. They did it in the, in the intersection of the four churches. <laughs> yeah. Well, when they got complaints yeah. that they were, um, you know, blocking traffic, he went to Pliny Sexton and said, could I use the park next door? Because Pliny owned it. Oh. And he said, yes. And in fact, I'll even let you have the bandstand as a pulpit. So, yeah. so, so, you know, they made some headway there and people came, they'd, you know, three, 400 people, crowds at a time would come and hear him preach. So that was one inroad. They were hiring the anti-Mormon lecturers to come in to, you mm-hmm. know, to, to keep Willard from making any progress. <laughs> um, but when the people learned how well-versed he was in scripture, because um, originally he wasn't allowed to, you know, debate or yeah, rebut yeah, yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but when they learned, they wanted to hear more from him. And he would go to their Sunday school class. He'd go to their churches and sit in the back in Sunday school. And he wouldn't say anything unless they asked him. So he just listened. And they started asking him questions. And they became so impressed with how he could explain the scriptures so eloquently. Yeah. So then they had him start teaching Sunday school in their churches. <laughs> so that was another inroad. But then, you know, but it still wasn't what Grandpa wanted. And he thought, finally he thought, everybody loves athletics. So this was about entertaining, not mm-hmm. beating people up. Mm-hmm. This was about entertaining, doing, doing a, a performance. An athletic so, ex- exhibition, basically. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. a boxing exhibition. So he arranged with the Opera House to set up a, a boxing Sexton ring. Plenty owned the opera house too, didn't he? Then? Probably. Yeah. He owned about oh, 30% of the town. Okay. okay. Property, yeah. yeah. And so he arranged with them to set up a boxing ring in that big auditorium of the opera hall. And then he invited anyone to get in the ring with him. So I don't know if he anticipated this or not, but the Mormon haters got the biggest, toughest guys from the neighboring towns to come Get in the ring. This was actually like advertising. I mean, they 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 tacking these things up on like the city buildings or whatever yeah, kind of thing. I think so. So so anyway, send another text messages to right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah. So anyway, the night of the exhibition, then it was packed, and the whole front row was filled with these big tough guys, just raring to get in and you know beat up this Mormon, knock him up for a loop. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> So the first guy gets in the ring, and he just lasted a few seconds. So they he was knocked out. out. Yeah, and, and you yeah. know we yeah. say knocked out, but that can mean you just don't get up for a count of ten. So whether they yeah. were unconscious or not, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so they took him out, and then the next guy got in, and the next guy. Well, they didn't even last around. Yeah, and, and, so and, then, finally, and in between, right, wasn't he like doing some yeah, he'd like do a flip cartwheels or, or a flip yeah. or something because he was so athletically yeah. inclined, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then the eighth guy wouldn't even get in the ring. So at <laughs> that point... I'm not going in there. <laughs> so at that point, then Willard drew a two-foot circle with chalk in the middle uh-huh. of the ring and challenged anyone to knock him out of the circle. And nobody could. He's so agile. 
nobody could knock him out. And remember, he's only Plus like he was quick like a cat, so he yeah. just, just used their yeah, force against good. him and whatever. He yeah. was good. In fact, Dad used to tell me that he could, with he could hit a fly on the wall, so exact that it would kill the fly, and he'd never touch the wall. Well, wow. amazing. He used to jump teams of horses. He did all kinds of things. So anyway, when nobody could <laughs> knock him out of the circle, then he did a gymnastics performance to end the show. People loved it. See, yeah. the movie tells it. See, the movie is kind of like that. Way. He just whooped up on these guys, and they were all just like, oh, that dirty, rotten Mormon and whatever. And he, like it was a turning point against them. Actually, it was, a turning, it was a turning point. point. In there for them, they realized what a cool guy he was. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I mean, he 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 played by the rules. He whooped up on these yeah. other guys. Yeah. Um, he didn't. He didn't try to make him come in, and he gave him, you know, and and so yeah. forth. And so it was actually a, a, a time of when he gained their really their respect. He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. What a cool guy, you know. Yeah. So anyway, and then let's go back to Pliny Sexton for a moment here. He was the banker. He and like I said he he was a multimillionaire, yeah. and he was known across the country. His his um, degree was actually in law, but he was a banker most of his life, mm-hmm. and he was a a kind um, old gentleman, but very cold blooded in business deals. <laughs> so I'll just say that much for now. We'll come back to that. Hence, he being a millionaire. Okay. Yeah. But but he he loved. Um, he loved to help people, but he liked he liked it really to be his own idea rather right. than people come to him and say, "Will you donate this?" He liked it to be his idea, and so he you know he gave um, shoes to the needy children every year, and he would plan something like they had a theater, and I don't think they had movies back then, so I'm not well. They <laughs> probably had the silent movies, but anyway. Whatever they did, he um, probably plays. I would imagine. Maybe, but anyway, he did a. a, You know, the kids could come free in the afternoons, Mm -hmm. like one day a week. Um, And so, after this boxing exhibition, he called Willard in and he said, "I want to do something different for these kids." And so he said, "Could you come up with something?" And so Willard presented. He says, "Well, how about we do a series of classes." That would address um, spiritual spiritual education, physical fitness, and self defense. He said, "Great, let's do it." Reverend Can was supposed to. He would introduce. You know when mm-hmm. you know previously when they had guests, he would introduce them. Well, when now it's a Mormon, he wouldn't get on the stage with one, let alone introduce one. <laughs> so he didn't show up. Didn't phase Willard. He just went on and did his thing. It really, though, upset Reverend Can's congregation, and they drove him out of town for doing that. <laughs> anyway, Reverend Can got canned by his own people. <laughs> so, so anyway, so Willard yeah. did this program, and you know, each week more and more kids came. It was a huge success, huge, and he said that boxing exhibition boosted his. His stock, he said, boosted my stock in Palmyra 100% plus. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a huge turning point. I, I'm disappointed that it was the reverse in the movie. Kind of portrayed as, yeah. as being a turning point where they turned against him instead. Yeah. And yeah. But, it, but that was interesting that that was yeah. that, that actually how, the, how that actually took place and so forth. That's yeah. good to kind of get the, you know, the truth out about yeah. that and yeah. so forth. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, Willard wrote four books. 
Camorra Land was the fourth one he wrote there, and it was never published. So um, Wayne May found out about it, and he found my sister. and Because Wayne, actually, this book, Geography of the Book of Mormon, when he got hold of this, he was so excited. This was really his inspiration to continue researching. Wayne found my sister, got together with her, and they combined Willard's Camorra Land book with all Some of, of Wayne's fabulous stuff, yes. information. Yeah. So the two of them edited all this together. There's you know, lots of pictures from Palmyra and my grandparents and so on in here. It's a great book. It is a great, great book. Great history it is really book. Good. In fact, let's go ahead and play that um, if we can. Yeah, I'll just so. give you... Uh, when we were in Palmyra, that time we took you up into the, the Opera House boxing mm -hmm. space, um, um, we also caught Wayne and and got mm -hmm. this interview from him to go on our documentary. Yeah. So I think that actually the, 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 the uh, interview was actually filmed in the Ancient American Museum in the Palmyra Inn, which is owned That's by right. Stephen Smoot, who was just a couple of weeks ago uh, on, the, on the Come Follow Me, yeah. on our Come Follow Me. So uh, that, right. if, if, you, if you hear that one, that was, that was the hotel that he, was, uh, that he built and so forth there, and then um, let us use that space to be able to show some of the ancient archaeology from the area there. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. A guy named Ron Garf hands me a little teeny book, about this big. I think it's about 94, 96 pages, and it was by... Cecil McGavin and Willard Bean on geography of North America. That was my first real encouragement. Somebody out here is alive besides me. I was sorry to see it was so far back, you know. And actually, I tried to find people. I didn't find anybody from Willard's side, but I found the McGavins, and I talked to them. And uh, that's how I really got started. Uh, just a little bitty book. That was my first real encouragement was Willard and McGavin's book. From what I knew of the Iroquois nation as a whole, it was very, very accurate, and I loved the, uh, the little snippets of the warfare between the, you know, the English and the French. And I mean, you know, what, what's really missing today, I, I feel, in American history, if, if you just stop at any used bookstore and you get a history book uh, from about maybe 19, 1930 back to even like 1890, and you hold up that history book and like this, you say it's this thick, I'd say probably a fourth of it is the establishment of this country. And in that is some of the best reading you'll have on the whole story of America in its infancy. And that's what your grandfather put in his paper, was that kind of material. And I've been reading this for years, so I mean, for me, I understood what he was talking about. I understood the English uh, politics and the French politics and the Iroquois switching sides back and forth and sometimes splitting their own nation into two, some with the French, some with the English. I understood that. And your grandpa's story, from as far as I'm concerned, he, he hit the nail on the head. And I just loved it. I mean, I thoroughly loved it. This is not an archaeology book like my first four are, but for me, this is, one, this is probably my favorite book. I love this book. The new period in history that Willard brings up is the very fact that this is the promised land. And Willard, without saying those exact words, that is what, that's what his message is delivering. And now where we are at today with all the struggles that we've been doing with, with archaeology in the church, getting the, the, the brethren and, and get really getting academia in the church to look to the east 
and not look to the south. And I think the, the big turning point was when the DNA hit. I mean, that was the last straw. Okay, here we are. We have the DNA. We have a Middle Eastern connection. And we've got maybe 1% south of the Rio Grande. But at the Great Lakes, we're running over 50%. I think that says volumes. And I say, yeah. And then you look back to Doctrine and Covenants 32, and where did they go? He went to the Algonquin family, and that's what's at the Great Lakes. It's the Algonquins. And when you talk to the Algonquins, they're one of the coolest things, and I, I found this out years ago. They will tell you, we came from the east. Now, they'll also tell you, we mixed with those who came from the west, but we were here first. Before I published this, this land number five, I had talked to a lot of people about this guy named Willard Bean. I wanted to find out, you know, where was he in the mix? And I found out there was a lot of people that didn't know about Willard Bean. And again, that to me was a serious mistake because without Willard Bean, there would be no Palmyra today for Latter-day Saints to come back and visit. I mean, really, it's just that simple. And uh, what he did here and his wife and the things their family went through, I mean, I read all the stuff. I mean, it's just, it was just unbelievable. I mean, this was a, you know... This was an unpleasant mission for a very long time, and uh, they put up with more than the average bear. And uh, boy, I really tip my hat to him, and I hope someday that uh, I can meet him. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty awesome. So that, again, that book is called This Land, Willard's Camorra Land. And uh, that is available on our uh, on our bookstore and so forth. You can get that um, also from Wayne and his um, website as well. Make sure to listen to part two and three of the Palmyra Legacy. To me, this is not just another nation. It is not just one of the family of nations. This is a nation with a great mission to perform for the benefit of liberty-loving people everywhere. It is my firm conviction that the constitution of this land was established by men whom the God of heaven raised up unto that very purpose. This is part of my religious faith. Looking forward to 2021, you can buy your annotated Book of Mormons for Christmas gifts and save 21% at bookofmormonevidence.org.